But it's really good to be together this morning and in a few moments to gather around God's table. But uh, before we do that, we're going to open God's Word. And we're going to go to a place in the Old Testament. We're actually going to be in the Old Testament the early part of this year. But we're going to go to a different place from a whole different section that we're, than we're going to start exploring next week. And that's uh, the Old Testament book of First Kings. First Kings in particular uh, focuses on a leader uh, of God's people way back when, the son of David. David had a lot of sons, but one of his sons was Solomon. And Solomon became king. He became king when uh, Israel had never been larger and stronger and more significant. He reigned in a time of peace. Um, there was a little uncertainty when he was getting ready to become king, though. In fact, uh, before David had even died, there was some contention about who was going to be king. And one of Solomon's brothers, and by the way, Solomon had a lot of brothers. Uh, those were other issues. David had a number of wives. And there were a lot of kids. And there was someone else who wanted to be king and thought he'd make the first step and make that happen. But uh, in spite of that intrigue and that um, competition going on, uh, before David's death, it was unmistakably clear in the land that Solomon was king of the land. And he began asserting that leadership. But an early moment in that story is told in 1 Kings chapter 3. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. Uh, the opening verses of 1 Kings chapter 3 describe some of the very first things that happened. Uh, Solomon married the daughter of the Pharaoh. Pharaoh wasn't a name. Pharaoh was like president or Caesar. It was a title. Uh, the, the leader of Egypt. Kind of an odd thing, really, because not that long before, Egypt and Pharaoh had been about the, the, the worst words. They were curse words in Israel because they had been the ones who'd held God's people in slavery way back when. But Solomon made an alliance. It was kind of a political move. Maybe there were other things going on as well. There might have been romance, and there might have been love, and there might have been something personal, but there was also something political. And so he made that connection by marrying one of Pharaoh's daughters. One of the things that, that came out clear in, in the opening verses of, of this chapter is also his intention and his plan to be a builder, to take the city of Jerusalem and really make it a capital city, to see building. David himself had had aspirations to do the same, but God had said, it's not for you, it's for my son to do that. And so that was Solomon's work. Solomon built, over the time of his reign, a, a great temple for God. He also built a great home for himself. Uh, he was a builder in that city. Um, it was a good time in a lot of ways. It was a blessed time for God's people, but there was also something afoot in the land that wasn't really all that good. In, in spite of God having chosen Israel out of all the peoples on earth to bless and to care and to make his own, not because he didn't care about anybody else, but because he was going to exercise his care for everybody else through this people, in spite of that, God's people struggled, they always struggled with really knowing him and really trusting in him and, and remaining faithful and doing what he said. Obedience is one of the toughest challenges that God's people face. I'm not, this is a rhetorical question, I'm not really asking for nods or hands. Any of you struggle with obeying God, being 100% focused in your love and your devotion and your obedience to what he says? I'll just speak on your behalf if you don't mind. I do. 100% purity, totally in for God, the God who totally chose us, being totally responsive in return, it's, it's not easy. No, that sounds like an excuse. The truth is it just doesn't happen, and it didn't happen way back when. And one of the signs that that, that, that was a reality 
was this, verse 2. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Now, high places? What were those? They were the vestiges of the pagan past of that land. They were places that had been set aside and devoted for the worship of a god or god or gods. They'd been, uh, been there before God's people had ever come. They'd been maybe recognized as special places, maybe, maybe kind of a, a civic feel. This would be a great location to, to, to come and to honor the gods or to honor some god in particular. And as God's people had come into that land, they had sometimes taken over those spaces and they'd used them as places to worship God. But God had warned them long before in the book of Deuteronomy, do not do that. Do not do that. Worship me the way I tell you to worship me. Listen to my word. Follow my guidelines. Do what I say. Be faithful to me as I've been faithful to you. But sometimes we have ideas that we'd like to improve on God's ideas a little bit. And the reality was there was not yet that special place in Jerusalem to worship. And so people did that. And uh, in those places, there's even archaeological evidence in one of those high places that not only had Yahweh been worshipped there, but other gods as well that predated the time. And that pagan religion was going to fester among God's people in the centuries to come. Some of the pagan gods fester in our own world today. There are other things that draw us away. Draw us away from total trust and total worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jesus. Solomon was a good guy in so many ways. In fact, the Bible says about him something it had never said about anybody else. It just said, Solomon loved the Lord. Verse 3, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David. Awesome. Except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. There are a couple of hints in the early description of Solomon that all was not right. Two things that stand out right here. Number one, his marriage to the daughter of Pharaoh. By the way, just so you know, if you look at the whole Bible and the whole teaching of Scripture, there's clearly nothing wrong with marrying someone from a different ethnicity, a different nationality, or a different race. There's no teaching of Scripture taken in total when you look at the whole picture that says there's anything wrong about that at all. But it does distinctly say that it is very dangerous and not pleasing to God to join yourself in the most intimate relationship you could ever be involved in with someone whose loyalty is to a different God than the God of Israel or the God of Jesus. And that's what Solomon did from the earliest moment of his leadership. And from the earliest moment of his leadership, he, like the other people, seemed to toy with doing things his way or our way as opposed to God's way. And as the years would unfold, Solomon would be tripped up by marriage and alliances and eventually worship of false gods along with the worship of the true God. See how challenging it gets? In spite of that, the story we read in this chapter is so significant. It's one of, really, a bright moment in the leadership of Solomon. 
God came to him one day as Solomon was expressing his devotion to God and worshiping him and sacrificing him in a very special place that maybe wasn't fully pleasing to God. But you know, isn't it amazing how God is sometimes gracious to us when we actually don't do it quite right? Have you ever experienced that? I sure have. In fact, I think that's the only way I experience God's grace is because on my own, I never purely 100% do it right, ever. And God still listens to me. He still cares about me. He still guides me. He still forgives me. He listened and he conversed with Solomon on this day. And God offered Solomon an especially great opportunity. This is what it says at the end of verse 5. God spoke to Solomon during the night in a dream and God asked, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Wow. Can you imagine? Solomon, ask me for whatever you want me to give you. Now I'm going to follow up reading the rest of the story, beginning with verse 6. And this is how Solomon responded. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You've continued this great kindness to him and, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I'm only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant here is among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? And the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you've asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the, the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will have, uh, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. And then Solomon awoke and he realized it had been a dream. And he returned to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then he gave a feast for all his court. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Uh, this morning, beginnings. Um, that's the title of the book we're about to begin. We're about to begin beginnings. Um, this book, uh, Jeremy talked about it a little while ago. We're encouraging you to step over following worship and pick up a copy for yourself. It's $10 for this book. It's true, you likely have these words somewhere, pretty much, but they're not packaged quite this way, and there is particular value in the way this book is put together. What is Beginnings? Well, Beginnings is kind of a new name for an old book. It's a new name for an old book. It's a new name for a portion of an old book. It's, it's, sort of a, it's a new name for a, sort of five books, and it's sort of a book unto itself. When I say it's a portion of a book, I think you know what I mean. At beginnings is the first part, but not the whole, of this book. This book is the Bible. And what we're going to start looking at next week is just a portion, the beginning portion of the Bible. Um, it is sort of uh, five books. Uh, you probably know this, but maybe you don't, that the Bible is a book, 
But in the way we talk about it, it's made up of many books. There are 66 books that make up the one book of the Bible. And that gets a little confusing. Most of the time when we have a book that we're reading, it might be divided into sections or parts, and then within that, various chapters. But that's not what we do with the Bible. The Bible is a book of books. And um, it just doesn't quite fit to call them chapters or sections or parts. They're actually made of the books, and that's true of beginnings. It's true of the first part of the Bible. There are five books in our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those five books, individual books, are wrapped up here, and we call them beginnings. Another way of looking at it is that beginnings is um, kind of a book unto itself. All of it together. It's like a five-volume book. It was written, at least tradition tells us, that the primary author was one man. His name was Moses. We'll read much of the story of his life in the, in the course of the next eight weeks or nine weeks because Moses was a key figure from Exodus through Deuteronomy. So most of the story uh, is tied up with times when Moses was a leader and a part of what was going on. Uh, it's sometimes called the Pentateuch. Penta, five, like Pentagon, five-sided building. Um, it's a, it's a five-part book, a, a five-part volume. Jews call it Torah. We are, in early 2018, just going to call it Beginnings. And I think it's a pretty good way to begin a new year with Beginnings. Beginnings of the Bible. It's January 7th, 2018 today, so take a look at this a little bit later. Um, it's January 7th, 2018. It's the first Sunday of the new year. We're going to gather around the table of the Lord because of that. And one of the commonest things in the history of churches is to give a special emphasis to prayer at the beginning of a year. And that's sort of what we're going to pay attention to this morning because we're going to talk about prayer a little bit and we're going to pay attention to that moment in Solomon's life, early in his life, to try to learn something about prayer. Because I, I want you to notice something. This is, this is near the beginning of Solomon's reign. It's one of the very first things he does. Of course, God comes to him, and God elicits it, and God offers him an opportunity, and God asks him a question. Solomon, here's it, here it is. I'm ready to respond. Ask for anything you want. What a setup. What a tee-up. What a lob of a pitch. Man, ready to smack it. That's that... that to be offered something like that would be astounding. And that's what God offered to Solomon. And Solomon responded in a most significant and most important way. I want you to listen to a couple of the very first things he says in response to that question. And then we're going to think about how this connects with us. Ask for whatever you want me to give you. And Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous, and upright in heart, and you've continued this great kindness to him, and have given him a son to sit on, this, on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I'm only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant here is among the people you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people, and to distinguish between right and wrong, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? Solomon did three things in response to that question in that moment. First, he looked at him, and then he looked at the job that was his, and then he looked to God. 
want you to think about those three simple steps that Solomon made. And the first was this. He looked at himself. And this is how he starts his pronouns. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Have you ever had a moment when you are starting something and suddenly you are aware that you don't feel like you have what it takes. You don't have the know-how. You don't have the experience. You've never been this way before. You've never stood in this place before. You've never had these responsibilities. You've never had the weight of reality right now weighing on you like it is. And suddenly, here you are. And all you can feel is, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to handle this. That was Solomon. Now, Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father David, but I'm only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. The English Standard Version of the Bible helps us a bit more. Oh, Lord my God, although you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. That's the, that's the literal language. I do not know how to go out or come in. I am utterly unaware. I don't know how to do it, God. I'm a beginner. I'm new to this. I'm not prepared. I'm not ready. But ready or not, here it is. God, I'm stuck. I'm just a little kid. What do I do? You know, um, it is not an easy thing for people to admit that we don't know what to do. It's not easy for us to say, I don't get it. How many of you have ever, just kind of ever, once in your life, pretended you knew more than you really did? How many of you have ever pretended when someone's talking about something, you have no clue what they're talking about at all, but you pretend like, you, you know, everybody else is laughing, you laughed. You don't, you don't understand what's going on. Anybody ever done that? Oh, when I was a kid, so every once in a while, getting introduced to something my parents hadn't introduced me to yet, and everybody's laughing, and I'm laughing hard. I have, I have no idea what's going on. Anybody ever interviewed for a job? and answered questions, and interviewed really well, and inside you're saying to yourself, man, I'm sounding way more qualified than I really am. We just don't like to admit reality. It's tough for us. In their book, uh, Think Like a Freak, economists Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner state, it has long been said that the three hardest words in the English language are, I love you. We heartily disagree. For most people, it is much harder to say, I don't know. They point to the following experiment as one of the many ways that we won't admit I don't know. So imagine this. You are asked to listen to a simple story and then answer a few questions about it. Here's the story. You listening? A little girl named Mary goes to the beach with her mother and brother. They drive there in a red car. At the beach, they swim, eat some ice cream, play in the sand, and have sandwiches for lunch. Now the questions. What color was the car? Did they have fish and chips for lunch? Did they listen to music in the car? And did they drink lemonade with lunch? How do you do? You don't know. Okay, so let's compare your answers to those of a bunch of kindergartners who were given this quiz by researchers. Nearly all of the children got the first two questions right, red and no. But the children did much worse with questions three and four. I think we all did much worse with questions three and four too. Why? Because those questions were unanswerable. 
there wasn't enough information given in the story. And yet, a whopping 76% of the children answered these questions either yes or no. Kids who try to bluff their way through a simple quiz like this are right on track for careers in business and politics. (laughs) Where almost no one ever admits to not knowing anything. Isn't that the truth? All right. It's tough to say, I don't know. It's tough to say, I'm a little child. I need your help. I, I, I don't know how to go out or come in. But at least on this day, Solomon said, God, I'm looking at myself, and I don't know what to do. Next, he looked to the task. Verses 8 and 9 give us a sense of what Solomon was thinking. Your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great people too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Solomon, I am king. I'm king of a nation, of a country, of a people, and they are great. It's not a tiny country. Oh, don't look just at the geography. It's not a tiny country. There are many people involved. They are too numerous to count, and they are the ones you have chosen, Lord. And Lord, just like you, cho- you spoke to our father Abraham long ago. Do you remember that moment in Genesis 15? Uh, Abraham was still a man without a, a son. God had said, you're going to have a son, you're going to have a family, but it had been, the years had passed since the promise had come. And Abraham and Sarah still did not have any children at all. Not even one. But God said to him, Abraham, Your servant is not going to be your heir. I'm going to make you a great people. I'm going to give you a son. And he took him outside and he invited him to look at the sky. Any of you done that in the last week? It's been so clear on so many nights to look out there. And God said, look up at the sky and count the stars if indeed you can count them. And then God said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And now all these years later, Solomon is king of that nation and it's like he's walking outside again and looking up at the sky and he's saying, God, the nation you've given me is like this. They are too numerous to count. There are so many of them. It is a great nation, a great people. And that sounds awesome. Wouldn't you rather be king of a great nation as opposed to a bad nation? Coach of a great team versus a team that's got nothing going for it at all, right? We like great. But you know the word that's translated great, and that's a good translation, is a word that also means heavy, weighty, a heavy people, a weighty responsibility. That's what he had. In a new book on Harry Truman and his early leadership as president, a book entitled The Accidental President, the story is told of April 12, 1945. Truman got up, he'd hardly been in office, he'd hardly been vice president at all, and he did the stuff that vice presidents did for the most part, which meant he did nothing at all important. He was getting ready to play poker that night, and he had some duties at the Senate to take care of, and he kept busy, but vice presidents weren't important at all. On that day, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was staying down at uh, uh, a summer home they had, I don't know, a summer home, a winter home, I don't know what it was, but anyways, down in Warm Springs, Georgia where the president went to get recuperation and treatment for his polio. He woke up that morning, and it wasn't many hours later as a portrait was being drawn of him, painted of him, that he complained about a huge headache, and that was it. A cerebral hemorrhage, and he died. 
Nobody was less prepared in the universe to be president of the United States than the, the man who was about to become that. It was a tough moment. The author of that book writes this. As the word spread, as a new president was, um, had taken the oath of office later that day, and as word spread that night, all over the globe that night, world leaders and humble citizens alike attempted to, to digest the news. The most revered of all men was gone. It finally crushed him when FDR's top speechwriters, playwright Robert Sherwood, wrote, the it was the awful responsibility that had been piling up and piling up for so many years. The fears and the hopes of hundreds of millions of human beings throughout the world had been bearing down on the mind of that one man. Think of what he had been in charge of. A great nation. A great people, a great country, as it turned out, a great military at the time of a great depression and suddenly in the midst of a great war and a great world that was struggling. And there were allies, but allies like the U.S. and the USSR were suddenly becoming more and more difficult to keep in sync with each other as that war was coming near an end. The weight of the responsibility was huge, and that's what Solomon saw. Solomon saw that. He said, God, I am a little kid when I look at myself. And then when I look at the responsibilities you've given me, I don't know. I think Harry Truman on April 12, 1945, although he was just shy of 61 years old and had been the second most powerful person in the world, felt like a little kid when suddenly he was president. Solomon looked at himself, and he looked at the task, and then he looked to the Lord. Listen to these words again. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? Solomon knew that the most important person, the greatest reality in all of the universe and in all of his life and all the existence and the story of his own people was the God of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who'd chosen and blessed that one man who with his wife in all their years together had never been able to have a child and said, I'm going to make of you a powerful, significant people and the world is going to be blessed through you. That God who made that promise, that God who'd led that people out of slavery in Egypt, that God who'd led his people into a brand new land, that God who'd cared for his people through the leadership of Solomon's father, David, a man after God's own heart. Solomon loved him. And Saul had been raised to, to listen to him and pay attention to him. And as he heard that request, Solomon, whatever you want, you tell me. Solomon said, God, you are the one who chose my father. And you're the one who blessed our people through my father. And you promised to give him a son who would sit on the throne, and now that is me. Your faithfulness is great. He looked at himself and he looked at the task, and it was suddenly overwhelming. But then he looked at God, and he knew there was hope. And then he looked to God, and he asked, God, it's just little me, and it's great people, great job, great responsibility, heavy stuff. I need your help. And what he asked for was this, give me wisdom. Give me a discerning heart. When we hear that, we think in our world, when we think heart, we think emotions and feelings, right? Put your heart into it, or a broken heart. 
But in the Bible, it's like mind and intellect and will and heart and feelings is all mixed up together. And so when Solomon was praying, God, give me a discerning heart, a listening heart. Uh, He was praying, God, help the very core of me as a thinking, willing, feeling person to understand reality, to know what is right and wrong, what is good and not good, what is best and not best, what is good, better, and best. Help me able to distinguish between things, especially give me a listening heart. You know what it means to have a listening heart? It means to be someone who hears God. Someone can hear life. Someone can hear what's being spoken in the circumstances and the situations around, but especially somebody who can hear God. And if you really hear God, do you know what you do? You do what he says. If you don't do what he says, you did not hear him. You know how we use the word listen with kids? Are you listening to me? Are you listening to me? Did you hear what I said? And what we're asking isn't necessarily, did you hear the, 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 the sounds, the audible you know, reverberations through the air and in your, in your head? But did you hear what I said? Meaning, why didn't you get up and do it? Right? We speak that way too, and that's, there's something about that with God. When God speaks to us, he wants us to, to hear it. He wants us to understand it. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to, to go where he says to go. He wants us to stay where he says to stay. He wants us to love the things he loves. He wants us to have a listening heart. Now, I... I, I I want to just say one more thing about that story and then just quickly apply it to you and me. Verse 10. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. He was pleased with that. And he made it really clear. He blessed Solomon. He said, you haven't asked for certain things. You haven't asked for wealth and fame. And I'm going to throw them in anyways. God was so pleased with what Solomon prayed about. My question for you and me at the beginning of this year is are we people at the beginning of 2018 who get a good look at ourselves and a good look at our responsibilities and a good look at God such that we begin this year in a special way with prayer, in a special way asking for his help and his aid? I don't know about you. I'm getting older. I got a birthday in a week. Time just keeps chugging along. Sometimes I think I know a few more things. Sometimes I think I know less things. Sometimes I'm more confident in this area, but sometimes I step into places, into deep water, and I think to myself, I've never been here before. I thought I would have covered the gamut by now, but I haven't. I'm still a little kid. God, I don't know. I don't get it. Think about your responsibilities. None of us here are president of the United States. None of us here are in charge of anything that big. None of us are are, are world leaders. So is this for us? None of us are dying because of the weight of a world war and and a nation laying on us like President Roosevelt way back when. But do you know what? You and I have great and heavy responsibilities in life. Many of you have families. 
That's a great privilege, isn't it? It's a great thing to be a parent and to have children. But you know what else it is? It's a heavy responsibility. And it's not simple. (laughs) Between the task and the world in which we live and our own inadequacy, we are little people trying to deal with big responsibilities. And it's not as simple as you're saying, God, get me out of this, or God, make everything right. But we never get anywhere that counts until we begin with prayer. And to begin with prayer always entails looking at yourself and looking at the situation and then going to God and saying, God, help me. Help me understand. Give me the wisdom to figure it out. I don't know what else to do. My question for you is, what do you pray about? in life. Do your prayers matter? If you're like most of us, frequently most of our prayers are circumstantial prayers. And they are about, Lord, please make everything in my life go just right. I don't think it's an evil prayer, but sometimes that's our dominant prayer. God, health. God, wealth. God, Ease, make it smooth, make it simple, keep it going. But God is looking for more prayers than that. Something deeper than just that. Fran Tarkenton, a former all-pro quarterback who led his team to three Super Bowls, wrote an article some years ago for the Wall Street Journal lambasting himself and other athletes for their shallow prayers. This is what he wrote. My forays into hoping for divine intervention didn't work out. I prayed fervently before each of the three Super Bowls we Minnesota Vikings played in. We played against the Dolphins, the Steelers, and the Raiders. I was sure God would be on our side for the game against the Raiders, at least. (laughs) After all, they were the villains of the league, and it was hard to believe they had more Christians on their team than on our saintly Vikings. But we lost. Before every game, no matter what team I was on at the time, the coach would always ask the most devout player to say a prayer. This would happen after we'd already been out warming up, so we'd all seen the crowd. We were in full uniform, complete with eye black, doubling as war paint, and the intensity of the week had built up to a near frenzy in the locker room. And then, after this holy moment of devotion and prayer, the team would all shout in unison, now let's go kill those... (laughs) Prayer. What do we pray for? What are you praying for at the beginning of this year? We don't have time to even look at it in Luke chapter 11 and Colossians chapter 1. Two passages. I encourage you to read those later. Take a look at those things. What do we pray for besides, Lord, make it all simple and easy? Well, let me give you a couple ideas. Number one, wisdom. Wisdom. Solomon's prayer was a really good prayer. And the Holy Spirit the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in your life to guide you. That's what Jesus talked about in Luke 11. Fathers give their kids generally what they ask for or what they need. What's God going to give you when you ask him for the Holy Spirit? When you ask for God's Spirit to fill you, empower you, guide you, open your mind for life? What's 2018 going to be about in your life, in my life, in our life as a church? I don't know, I just know it won't go very well if we don't be at the beginning with asking for help. So this, this day, early in this year, 
That's what I invite you to, to pray. So let's pray. God, we bow before you. We thank you for our brother Solomon, a sometimes not totally loyal heart, sometimes mixed motives and mixed strategies. But he loved you, and he came to you. And when given an opportunity to ask for anything, he looked at himself, and he looked at his world, and he looked to you, and he asked for the kind of help that would make a difference. So Lord, at the beginning of this year, help us be a people where we are, who see that we're little kids with big responsibilities that have eternal significance, and we need your help. Give us wisdom. Give us your spirit. Help us to aim higher than just having a smooth, easy life. Do something that matters through us this day and this year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.